1 Kings three sixteen through 28. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened, the third day after I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept. And I laid him in her bosom and, and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had borne. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead woman, the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman, whose son was living, spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for sharing it with us in the living word of God. And Lord, we thank you particularly for the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've been able to follow along with Solomon on his journey. We thank you for his conclusion today, God, and how it gives all glory and honor to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, you'll remember in uh, the first, in verses uh, three through uh, five of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we were reflecting on old age and the decay of old age. Um, so I would ask you, we, don't, we haven't usually gone back a week before, so if you could think back to that. How does Ecclesiastes challenge us in our reflection on, on old age, whether, whether you're already elderly or uh, you're young? Perhaps another way, we saw some of the weaknesses and pitfalls that that happened to the elderly. Um, and of course, the youth have their own strengths. Um, so how should that affect how we live together, perhaps as a church community? Well, yep. Helping one another, okay. Right, taking your own strengths 
and, and the wisdom of, of the elderly as well, having lived, isn't wisdom about how we live in this world. So uh, the elderly reaching down to help the young generations and the young reaching up to help the elderly, I, think, I just think it really speaks to our need to live and move as a community in the church. Let's go ahead and read the conclusion. Verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every, everything, whether good or evil. So vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Do you have, after where we got to last week, in, at the end of chapter 11 and into the first half of chapter 12, do you have any thoughts about why Solomon put this verse here? Right. You know, Solomon, he's in his, I don't know if we could call it research, as he's been on this journey, how thorough he had been. I, it searched my heart. Or he didn't, you know, he dived in with both feet, whether it was into something sinful or into worship in chapter 5. He, he really put his all into it. So, you know, it's, it shouldn't be stressing that we see it here at the end or near the end in verse uh, in 12.8. Uh, it's merely a restatement of the theme of his investigation. Um, think of it as the, uh, the title, the cover of a book, and the book has the back cover. So Solomon is saying, this is the journey I'm going to be on as I explore. Vanity of vanities, the front cover might say, and vanity of vanities, it may say in the back. But what is in between, we saw last week particularly, we are to rejoice in life and not see everything as a vanity, the good and the bad. And we are to remember our creator. In verse 9, he writes, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So we talked uh, some in the introductory classes about how Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2, and here at the end, switches to the third person. And some think that, well, there was a narrator writing around the words of Solomon at the very beginning and at the very end. Nothing I've seen has, has changed my opinion personally, that I think Solomon is simply shifting tenses as he speaks here and speaking in the third person. Um, 
And I'm still just struck by this use of the word preacher. You know, Solomon opens the book of Proverbs saying the words of Solomon, right? Here, it's interesting that in this book, he does not name himself and he uses the title preacher. um, Or Kohelet is, is the Hebrew. You know, his name Solomon meant peaceable. The name Jedidiah, which Nathan the prophet came to him with a word from the Lord and called him Jedidiah, means beloved of the Lord. I just get the sense that Solomon was wanting to step out of the picture at this point. After all, this whole journey in Ecclesiastes had been about I, 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 I did this, I saw that. So I I think it's uh, quite a gentle touch by him to remove his name from the narrative altogether. Commentator Charles Bridges says here, Ere the preacher shuts up, he adds a few words concerning himself, calculated to give weight and authority to his sentence. So, first, the preacher was wise here in, chapter, in, in verse 9. And there's no doubt that God gave Solomon godly wisdom when Solomon asked God for wisdom in 1 Kings 3.10. Because it says Solomon's request pleased God. He knew that Solomon, and searching Solomon's heart, was asking for that good godly wisdom and not the, uh, the wisdom from James chapter 3. Let's turn there. I, being a book, a, wisdom, a book of wisdom literature, let's turn to James 3. I think it's important to see what's, what, again, is the alternative if you're not practicing and not using godly wisdom. James 3.13, and we'll go on to 4.6. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, as we go through these terms, you'll see him playing uh, godly wisdom off against the wisdom of the world. And when you, you'll see the wisdom of the world, some of the very same things that uh, Solomon delved in, 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 uh, in ungodly wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. You just get the sense of Solomon, earthly, living under the sun and being so focused on that. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You remember in chapter 2 how he pursued pleasure as an answer. You lust and do not have You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain... The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. It seems that this whole book of Ecclesiastes is about bringing humility to Solomon. Not a focus on himself, but a focus on others. He did all of these evil things in his lifetime. Self-seeking, boasting, envious, confusion, desires for pleasure, lusting, not having, uh, coveting but never obtaining or being satisfied. That's vanity that he was seeing. Asking amiss to spend it on his pleasures. A friend of the world, proud. And when he had strayed from godly wisdom, he lost his way. He saw vanity in everything around him. You know, the front of the cover, and he's assuming the back of the cover by the time he's done is going to read the same way. But instead, he kept on his journey. And I think uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, when he began with prudently, when, walk prudently when you enter into the sanctuary. Draw near, remember to hear rather than to prattle on. Remembering God in heaven and on earth, paying vows to God, fearing God. That's how he ended that section, going into worship. But fear God. And of course, as we saw in chapter 11, rejoicing in the providence of God as governor of this world. Recognizing, finally, that Solomon was not in control. In chapter 12, remembering his creator and that he was but a creature. So in all of this, he was finally able to take up again the good gift of true and godly wisdom. It seems that he used that wisdom in his youth, as we saw there in 1 Kings, and he was living it and using it here at the end of his life as well. Well, our verse goes on. Not only was he wise, but he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So this is what wisdom is for. Just like we said, the elderly helping the young along in their wisdom. And and the wisdom being uh, willing to rise up in their strength and help the elderly as well. This is a community. So Solomon, remember his title, preacher, Kohelet. It means one who assembles, and we see both aspects here. The idea of assembling or bringing people together for teaching, but what did he teach? But the very Proverbs that he had assembled. Um, Turn to 1 Kings 4. I've enjoyed going back and forth. So many things we've been able to pull out of First of, uh, Kings and, and Second Samuel uh, that kind of gives some background to the book of Ecclesiastes. So First Kings 4.29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east, And all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. 
and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke, here we go, the 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even so to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things and of fish, and men of all nations, here's the assembling, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So our verse tells us he pondered. That means he's carefully listening and evaluating. He sought out. This is thoroughly and with diligence. He definitely had both feet in in his journey. And he arranged. So he's editing and interpreting uh, the sayings of the wise. All right. Verse 10 in chapter 12. The preachers sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. So the nature of these Proverbs were that they were acceptable, they were upright, they were words of truth. Uh, I think of this word acceptable, and my mind goes right to Ephesians 4.15, where we're told that we must speak the truth, right? We must not lie. We must speak the truth, though, in love. So uh, Michael Eaton says, pleasing words are more useful than ill-considered words, but not so pleasing that they cease to be upright. To be upright but unpleasant to the hearer is to be a fool. But to be pleasant but not upright is to be a charlatan, to be a fake to not be, you know, it's the difference uh, of employing earthly or godly wisdom. Now in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. This is what wisdom literature is for. This is what biblical wisdom literature is for. There, there was uh, worldly wisdom literature in, in Solomon's day, um, among the other civilizations, but biblical wisdom literature has these attributes to it. In general, wisdom literature teaches one how to, to live skillfully in the world, how to, how to get by, but biblical wisdom literature, as seen in Proverbs chapter 1, 2, and 3, says to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. The things that so so disturbed Solomon in his day and led him to see vanity all around him, injustice, remember, and the oppression of the poor. So how does wisdom literature teach, biblical wisdom literature? Well, first, as goads, which are essentially a a cattle prod, a long stick with a nail in it, they prod us into action and in the right direction, not just to move, get up and go, not be like Solomon straying off the road into his royal experiment, 
seeking all kinds of ways to, uh, to fill up the vanity in his life and what he was seeing around him. But they're also well-driven nails, meaning they hold in place. We've all seen a not well-driven nail that doesn't work very well. The board will back right out, and it's not held in place any longer. I just think that that speaks to the word of God, giving us a solid foundation. And we've got to have that solid foundation as things, as we wear down over the years, as we physically wear down. I mean, hearing may go. What if sight goes? Not so important these days. You know, we have uh, books on tape and I'm sure the Bible on tape or digital. Um, But it's important to have this word in our heart, holding us in place when when difficult times come. And about the, the pain of God using the word as goads, David Gibson says, don't domesticate your Bible. You will know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behavior, challenges your thinking. Let's turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. This is God's discipline. This is the cattle prod, so to speak. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's that's a whipping. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they, the human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But that's interesting that towards the end there. For they, the human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us. See, the human father sees not very far into the future. They can make some assumptions. They can try to figure out 
how to best discipline, how to handle a situation with a child. But our Heavenly Father knows it from this title page or this cover in the front of the Bible all the way to the back. He knows it from the beginning of time and before time to the end and into eternity. So it really speaks to the wisdom of a true heavenly father who cares about his people, cares about his sons and daughters, and administers discipline as only he knows best. Or we can choose to be as Solomon, who just sees what he wants to do and sees answers found only under the sun rather than in his heavenly father. But I'm glad we didn't leave Solomon there. We also see that there's one source, God of all the works, all the words of the wise, all of those who have ever spoken godly wisdom and ever will. This is the one shepherd. Remember how, uh, how Christ had to turn Saul, almost like a dumb beast, from the road to Damascus. He kept him on the road to Damascus, but he administered discipline. And what did he say? He said, it's Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is an idea of, um, of the cattle pushing back, hitting back against the stick. But what happens when you kick back against a a board with a nail in it? It doesn't get any better for you. So it was hard for him to kick against the goads. Saul was Christ's son. And Christ went after him, as you'd expect, a loving Heavenly Father too. So he turned from breathing threats and murder against the disciples to silence and obedience. And plainly here we see a reference to the inspiration of Scripture as breathed into the human writers by the Spirit of God without possibility of error. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed out inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, and think of uh, our Hebrews discipline, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We can see there the idea particularly of the Bible training one in how to live skillfully, meaning godly under the sun. Now in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. So we are to be instructed by godly words of the wise from the prior verse as they both goad us in the right direction and hold us firmly in truth. But as to the great mass of other material that existed even 3,000 years, years ago in Solomon's day, just think of now, the writings not from our own shepherd, we should not assume 
that they have godly wisdom in them. We must be pragmatic and exercise caution for two reasons. Well, it's 2 Timothy 3, again, 14 and 15. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So again, the first thing, we go to the word for godly wisdom. If we went to the world, sure, through common grace, the world may have some godly wisdom to offer through the grace of God, but we must be on our guard because we can know that anything the world offers will not always uh, consist in godly wisdom. The second reason is that the physical effects of much study are wearisome to weak, fe- weak flesh. I used to think that this meant probably, oh, there's so many books out there if you read them all or, or whatever, but a lot of us really love to read and just never seem to be filled up. I'm not sure that that's speaking to, uh, that, that a human wouldn't be up to the task of reading and reading and reading. But I wonder if it's the idea that in our flesh we, we have weakness. And so it, we have to really be on our guard as we're reading something that's not of the Bible um, to not be tempted to go down that path towards ungodly wisdom. The flesh is weak. In uh, verses 13 and 14, we conclude with, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon's conclusion is to fear God and keep his commandments. In Psalm 112, 1, we read, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Remembering our creator from verse 12, 1, is subsumed within fearing God. We fear God because this is our creator. We fear God because he is perfect and just and holy. But rejoicing in everything, as we learned in uh, the end of chapter 11, it's our portion from God. And it's subsumed within the rest of the duties of obedience in keeping his commandments. Um, I particularly uh, needed to hear chapter 11 on rejoicing in everything. Uh, But there's so much more to the commandments of God. And so that's why I would say that rejoicing is subsumed within keeping his commandments. Let's turn to Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
Michael Eaton said that if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then it's also the end. And to that sense, he cites to 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, we won't be perfect here under the sun until the Lord takes us. But you still have this sense of working right up to the end, right up to the end of life, plowing right on through the difficulties of old age and completing the journey in Christ. So in that sense, the fear of God, I would agree, is both the beginning and the end of wisdom. Eden also says that the order here of fearing and keeping commandments is significant because conduct and how you act derives from worship. We obey God because we know who he is. We, we fear God. We rejoice in his wisdom. So this is where the wisdom, the fear of God, meets the law of God. He says, for this is man's all. Again, Solomon on his journey with both feet in, witnessing all of that vanity and enigma and putting it into perspective. He seems to have left no stone unturned. And so he dedicates man's all back to his creator. We fulfill our duty as creatures by worshiping our creator in all that we do, in thought and in word and in deed. 1214, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says everything, even the hidden works, whether good or evil, will face God's judgment. This is not the first time Solomon has said this. Turn way back to Ecclesiastes 3. 3.14. You'll remember his poem earlier in the, in the chapter on the times and seasons all appointed by God. So verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, he goes on to tell about the end of time when everything will be set aright and justice will be back in the seat of justice. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And that day will we'll unmask everything. Despite all the vanity and mystery, the crookedness and the lack, the kinks and the gaps in creation that exist because of the curse on the world, cursed by God, 
because his creatures sought out many schemes, you'll remember. All the secret things will be made plain. There will be no vanity on that day. It all will matter. God will see everything and everything will have its day in court to be weighed in the balances. This idea of secret and hidden things. Psalm 90 verse 8. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. In Matthew twelve thirty-five to 37. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This I, every idle word that men may speak, that's a carelessness. In fact, in the ESV it says every careless word. Those seem to be, so things are, are hidden or secret that we thought were done in the dark. But there's also a sense of even almost unconsciously sinning, not even realizing how, how uh, unfruitful the words we speak are, the idle and careless words, being reckless in our speech. So it sounds like a terrible day. But I want to ask you guys with a few minutes remaining, what does that day of judgment mean to the Christian? Give me some words that pop into your mind. Lasting peace peace for the Christian? Delight. Delight, right? Uh, All of our tables comparing Ecclesiastes to Genesis. Delighting again as in the garden. Pleasure. Free at last. Yeah. Honor and respect of God, of course, but no fear of God in the worldly sense. Confidence. Well, our great high priest sits on the judgment throne. I'll bring all the books in that that I've used um, when we revisit on Labor Day in two weeks. Next week, John Rubonham will be starting his his teaching. Um, So bring any any questions, thoughts, wonderful verses you want to talk about again from Ecclesiastes on that day. We'll just have an open discussion. One of the books I really enjoyed Certainly, given it's not very thick, I, I quoted uh, by, you know, pro rata <laughs> uh, the most from that one. <clears throat> David Gibson says the, the two great helps are to let death be our teacher and to treat life as gift, not gain. Treating death as a teacher, he says, simple wisdom is preparing for the end. God will put it right, and we should prepare to meet him. 
Your death and the judgment to follow are the very things that can reach back from the future into today and transform the life God has given you to live. And as to life is gift, not gain, it's so striking, he says, that while Ecclesiastes tells us there is no gain to be had under the sun, Paul says there is, in fact, one thing to gain. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on the earth, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart, in other words, to die and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Gibson says, Paul knew that in Christ, living and dying mean win-win. We can labor for Christ while we live. We can live with Christ when we die. And I like how Gibson did that. He essentially turned Solomon's whole perspective on vanity on its head. Solomon would have said and has said, what's the point of living if you'll die and be forgotten? The fool and the wise all die, so what's the point of living with wisdom? The poor wise man saves the city, saves the very people in it, but they turn on him and reject him later. The fickle populace. So why even try? But when we let death and judgment teach us, then we must live in Christ to the glory of God. Death is not the great vanity, but gain for the Christian as the great gateway to eternal life. Then we keep life in its proper perspective, not as the time to store up vain and earthly treasures, right? But heavenly treasures to enjoy and rejoice in the blessings of God under the sun. We are under the sun. We are under the sun and there's vanities. We must be careful that we weigh them in the balance. So life is no longer seen by Solomon as vain and disturbing or an enigma, a mystery, but an opportunity, we know, for sharing the gospel, the good news, to preach through our actions The fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Not failing to rejoice, but rejoicing and remembering our Creator, fearing God and keeping His commandments. But to the struggler, unbeliever, or believer, I say, take up the cross of Christ Job was a struggler. Did God abandon him? Solomon was a struggler. Did God abandon him? He does not leave or forsake his own. What are you struggling with? God never validates sin, but he does require us to struggle with it. You might ask, what if I can't see? 
what God is doing? What if I don't understand? I've only got that vision out a few days, and in reality, not even that. Well, it requires faith and trust. Solomon doesn't say, remember yourself. He says, remember your creator and rejoice that the creator who made you is still working in you. It's time to stop saying with Solomon, I saw, and say, I believe, walking by faith and not by sight. I believe in spite of what I see. We've got to let the Bible prick us like goads and nail us firmly in place. But that won't happen if we're not reading it, if we're not praying. You know, the Lord was the starting point with creation, with the words, let there be light. The Bible is his word and shows us how to live in a cursed world, how to prepare for death and judgment. Three fairly lengthy passages and so little time. Um, Well, we got one more class, so I'll just read one of these. You could turn there, Matthew 12. Thirty-eight to forty-two, Matthew twelve thirty-eight to forty-two. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." But he answered and said to them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man." Be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. God, thank you for your good word. May it prick us. Thank you, thank you that you're the great and heavenly Father who wields it, God, in his people and in their hearts to prick us, to poke us in the right direction, and then to nail that nail firmly in place, Lord. God, we thank you that you shared your good word with us. Thank you for Solomon recording through the Holy Spirit the words of his journey. And thank you for the truth and how it ended. We praise you, Creator. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.